Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. Uh, I am Adam Pawatic. I'm here with Aaron Cameron, my co-host, and our guest today is Jeremiah Shamus, who's a redevelopment and development land specialist with Colliers International. And I thought we'd have him in today to talk about uh, GTA land. I know our last few episodes definitely were of a, were of a development tone. And so, of course, this is uh, this is the step one of, of trying to build your empire is buy some land. And that's what Jeremiah specializes in. Welcome to the show, Jeremiah. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Happy thanks for here. coming. Thanks for coming. Just as uh, just to start us off, Jeremiah, do you want to give us uh, just a background on how you got in the business and uh, you know some of you know right up to what you're working on more recently? It was a little bit of a backwards way into the business. My uh, cousin worked in Chicago on the debt lending side, actually, and uh, I'd been getting a little bit of exposure to the commercial real estate world. So uh, learning from him in terms of how deals get done. Um, who does them, who are the players in the games. And uh, turned out uh, an alumni in my fraternity worked for Collier's and at a networking event, I spoke to him and learned a little more on the brokerage side. I really liked the fact that it was a combination of analytical and sales and uh, you get a lot of exposure to uh, different asset types. And so I joined Collier's as a research analyst um, in 2009 and uh, and then worked on a team specializing in development land um, the next year, and the rest is as they say is history. So you've always you've always worked on land on development land. Yes. Yeah. Just for 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 me and our listeners, I guess like what are the different types of land? Uh, you know, I guess indistinctively farmland or what else? What other kind of land would you be considered that that wouldn't fall inside your purview? Um, well, there's. There's a lot of specialties of land. You can get into the minutiae of it, but mostly there's residential and commercial, mm-hmm. call it. And in the commercial realm, you'll break that apart into office, retail, industrial. And then, of course, you can further break it down into you know data centers and uh, medical science. Uh, but mostly those are the three. Um, okay. And would all those fall into the redevelopment, development land at the end of the day? They can, yeah. in some terms, uh, less likely. I would say 80% of my practice is residential land okay. focus, and then the 20% is retail office. Not a lot of industrial, because we have a, a team who focuses purely on industrial. Okay. and But uh, mostly, uh, from the time being, it's residential land. And, and that includes, I guess, obviously single-family development plus low-rise, mid-rise apartment condo development. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And where's uh, if you're if you're jumping into a deal, what um, stage of you know land entitlement would you would you ideally step into uh, step into a project? Well, I've been brought in on many many different levels. Everything from you know defaults to the very beginning stages of buying the asset or the land rather, and bringing it through the entitlement, the rezoning process. But I would say the ideal um, for an owner is after or before purchase so that they can either get some help on what exit strategy they're looking at, whether it be actually developing the parcel or selling off uh, an entitled parcel, you know, a zoned parcel of land and looking to see 
what value they can create and where it's going to end up at the end of the day. Okay. What kind of deals have you been working on you know, most recently, just as uh, some examples? Recently, it's been a lot of redevelopment land um, in the core. I would say there's uh, there are some deals I'm working on over in the Hamilton area. Uh, most recently, we just went firm on a deal. Downtown development land piece will be condo. Uh, mostly, it's in the core. Um, repositioning of assets, um, whether it would be historical properties, um, one on King Street, um, retail with some redevelopment long-term potential, and then just pure redevelopment to mixed-use condo development type stuff. So that's uh, that's kind of the biggest driver lately. And I would say the single greatest asset I work on lately would be mid-rise. Uh, there's a lot of guys looking for mid-rise, a lot of them a lot of landowners looking to understand what to do with their parcel in mid-rise areas. Isn't the city of a prerogative as well to uh, push mid-rise development? Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. I've seen uh, Jen Keysmet tweeting about that uh, yeah. extensively. She loves that, yeah. And we wish she would tweak it a little more <laughs> in other ways. But uh, in the city of Toronto, you have what's called the avenues. And these are uh, areas that are um, fronting with commercial street front retail and they're backed by single-family housing um, behind the site. So they have this frontage along these avenues that can be mid-rise development, and the city typically looks to anything up to 8, 10 stories roughly, but most of the time you're in the 6 to 8-story range, and a lot of that right now is uh, in demand, um, really more because... Uh, what's driving it is the market of residential homes, right? Where people are trying to buy these houses in the financial core um, all the way over to, you know, um, Kingsway on the east side, Leslieville, where there's, it's really homes that people can actually live in. And uh, to find those homes and buy them is quite difficult now for your average buyer. So uh, what has happened now is there's been some developments that have been more, I would say specialize in terms of end user product, right? Uh, a couple examples would be cabin on Dover Court, a six story, 35 Wabish in Roncesvalles, um, and then you have Dundas West, Nero. These developments cater more to the end user. So they're larger units, they're actually livable, they're not catered towards the investor uh, driven um, buyer who buys condos downtown. This is kind of, I think, part of the growth pattern that is pushing mid-rise in the city so we you know we've been doing a lot of uh work in the mid-rise area right now you think that's that's driven primarily by the just the demographics the changing demographics in the city and, and you've got you know uh, baby boomers sort of leaving the nest or how, how, how do you how do you put that yeah selling their selling the the home and, and looking to downsize and that, that's what's driving these larger units that for that end user or do you think it's it, what other factors do you think contribute to that that, that trend I think that is definitely one of the factors. Um, Jonathan Goldman just launched a site, uh, Stafford Homes at Avenue and Lawrence, the old beer store there. Well, current beer store called Avenue and Park. And he, I think he sold fairly well there. And I, I think there's only 35, 40 units there. And they're all large. They're 1,000 square foot or 2,000 square feet and up. And in that market specifically, yeah, those are empty nesters looking to um, sell their two, three million dollar home in Forest Park or Forest Hill, uh, Lawrence Park, and uh, you know they're looking for something that will be sustainable in the long term. They don't have a yard to deal with, et cetera, et cetera. 
But in other cases, say Queen West, for example, um, in Parkdale, Roncesvalles, for example, Leslieville, these type of markets where people actually want to live in and they might be a first-time home buyer. Um, they might be like, you know, Adam, right? He, he wants a home. He wants something where his family he can live. You know, he wants something that he's going to hold on to probably for the next five to ten years. Now, a lot of people, your average person can't afford the average home in these areas. Like Queen West area, Roncesvalles, I think the average home price is $1.2 million, mm-hmm. And this is a 1,500 square foot. Yeah, and going up 17% a year. Exactly, or yeah. Exactly. And this is a, a detached home or a semi-detached home where... That's, that's 80 years old and needs $100,000 exactly. of retrofit just to make it livable. Frustrating yeah. for a lot of people, I'm sure, right? So I think the market has started to shift now with the new lending rules on the residential side um, with the stress tests uh, for anything under 20%. Your average person doesn't have two hundred to $300,000 to put as a down payment and be able to afford that. So in terms, they're, they're starting to look at condo product to be uh, something that their family can live in. So 35 Wabash, every every um, unit there is over 900 square feet, right? So it's mm-hmm. two bedrooms, right? They're starting to think, okay, I can live here. So so just to back up a little bit, so let's say I, you know, Adam and I go out and raise some equity and we, we want to buy, um, buy some land and we've identified that we want to do this type of sort of thousand square foot higher end. I mean, is that at that point when we come to you and say, okay, what's in the marketplace? Where, where are the locations we should be looking, you know? Like where do you get involved? I just want to, you know, what's what's the what's the what's that? What point do we do you get do you get pulled in by these by the developers to assess or find the the right the right asset? We work a lot with landowners to help them understand what asset they have. Most landowners, their first business is not real estate. So, say for example, they're sitting on uh, like a a property we sold on Dundas West. Um, they had a car sales uh, lot there for years they had rented out one of the buildings uh, and they had basically wanted to retire the estate was under trying to understand what to do with the property right um, most people don't understand the true value of land sure. yeah, right? it's, 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 not, it's not based on cash flow it's right? not based on cash flow especially development um, is very subjective yeah. it's not like income where you can Look yeah, at it. throw a cap rate on it, and there's your value, and hopefully exactly. you get 10% over ask, right, or whatever it is. Yeah, Exactly. So. so a lot of landowners will come to us and say, you know, what do I do with my land? What is it worth? What should uh, the next steps be? And how are you finding these guys? Are you are you literally knocking on doors, or are you kind of basically specked out the entire city? You know where the, the land is, who are the... Um, legacy owners, I guess, for a better word. And I guess those are the those are the best uh, the best clients for you. The guys that have owned the land for 40, 50 years are disconnected from the from the development market at large. And your your job is to go in and educate them. Yeah, there's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Uh, I have a team, and the uh, we have guys uh, going out into the market every day looking for land owners. Uh, we also get a lot of lawyers, planners. Um, architects reaching out to us and saying this landowner needs some help because mm-hmm. they want to dispose of their asset. Um, but going back to your first question, we do have developers coming to us and saying, you know, I want to build this type of asset. Are there some areas I should be looking at? Is there some product you know of? So while we typically represent landowners, um, we will do buy side representations as well. 
depending on who the purchaser is. Yeah, I, I find the um, the land assembly approach fascinating to me, and we'll jump markets quickly. So Vancouver um, has recently passed some legislation that allows uh, apartment buildings to be decondominiumized or de-stratified, yes. right? That, so, yeah. um, and this is applicable to to Toronto to a certain degree, where there are there are let's say you know a, a variety of storefronts on a corner, and, mm-hmm. and there are developers trying to buy up all the storefront um, the parcels of land. But back to Vancouver for a second, I find it fascinating that now there, there are these apartments, there are sort of these condos that are that are now being bought up like crazy by the developers because they've identified. 1960, 1970 era of condos, and they're trying to buy all the condo units, yeah. and then basically de-stratify, tear the building down, and then redevelop because there's just no more land. And so it's it's the bidding wars that you must see from some developers when it's that last parcel of land on a land assembly. I mean, can you, you know, speak to that and kind of maybe a specific example of some chaos where you've had you know four or five guys or or I don't, I'm, I'm, again it's I'm, it's it's it, Something I'm not familiar with, so let's go through the process. Yeah. Other than um, playing Monopoly, yeah, yeah, Everybody exactly. Knows yeah, yeah. Playing Monopoly, <laughs> I know. You that's it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Park Place, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we don't we don't have see a lot of the the vertical land assembly. Call it um, out in Vancouver is some interesting stuff going on there. I know the one concert deal. Anyways, but uh, I actually sold uh, a land assembly earlier this year on behalf of three landowners at the northwest corner of Church and Wellesley. We brought that out into a full marketing process to drive value for the landowners. That's a, that's an apartment set, I believe, right? It will that's, be uh, yeah, purposeful. So did the landowners kind of get together at first, right? And they kind of knocked each other's doors, said, hey, I want to sell. You want to sell? Sure, let's get together. And, and then they approached you combined? Or were, were, did you go and you know facilitate the landowners coming together? I facilitated it. Um, I was approached by one landowner uh, through a uh, mutual relationship and they basically said you know I'm looking to do something with my property is there some potential here and went through some planning some analysis of his site and basically figured out you know your site's too small on its own have you talked to your owners ever and he said yeah I know them and they are looking to potentially sell so then he wanted me to approach them so I had then approached them spoke to them about the process we went through a marketing analysis to understand Okay, if we were to sell it, what would it look like? They're more valuable collectively than individually. Exactly. The sum of the parts was greater. And so at that point, we um, were mandated by all three landowners to take it out to the market um, to sell it. And to your point, we we actually had 17 bids. Hmm. Um, It was uh, kind of a feeding frenzy for the developers. Uh, A lot of subjective planning in place. Some people thought you could build high-rise. Some thought you could build mid-rise um so it ended up getting some pretty serious density didn't it um it's not zoned yet oh no okay okay yeah uh one properties bought it uh formerly wham um which is a merchant developer out of edmonton um they built the arena there Mm -hmm. um you may be familiar but they were uh planning purpose-built rental at the time i'm not sure exactly where they are at this point they're sophisticated owners so they're undergoing the entitlements process right now it was a very interesting play because it was quite literally landowners coming together and understanding that we're going to sell based on what we get and we'll share up the pot um, equally. Now, it didn't actually end up happening that way, but uh, at the time, the landowners were very proactive in doing that and they were receptive to our process. 
Is this a new thing, or is this something that's just always gone on, where the landowners have kind of gone together and said we're we're more valuable together? I mean, is, or is this just because of the development in the city that you have these sort of again legacy owners that are realizing, hey, wait a minute, you know, I I, I paid fifty thousand dollars for this thing in nineteen sixty. <laughs> yeah. um, I wonder what it's worth now, and then just starting to, to go through the process. I, I think it's actually born out of a reaction to unsolicited offers most of the time. Um, almost any property that I deal with, if it hasn't had an unsolicited offer on it, it's probably not a good parcel of property. Yeah. Uh, most developers are out there chasing land directly. They'll have everyone from Remax home agents chasing land well, to them. We had Sean <laughs> Fleming on um, from uh, Metropia last week, and he was talking about how you know he he does he's on the sort of land acquisition side. I don't know if you've come across him or not before, yep. but but certainly he said, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Often it's just, hey, I like this piece of land. I know I could what I could do with it, and you just start knocking on doors and doing whatever you can to get in front of the landowners. I, That's if, exactly if right. they're doing it, I can imagine there's twenty or thirty other you know acquisition guys for developers doing the same thing. Is exactly right. And it, it brings up an interesting point because right now there's a bit of a dichotomy in the market where the landowners are continually asking for more money because they don't know what is good money. So if someone's coming in with an offer every month and it's sneaking up in price every month, well, as a landowner whose first business is not real estate, you're going to you're gonna start to be a little more apathetic about uh, your decision making. Right. So you're going to start to say, well, maybe I should sell at this dollar or this dollar. Right. So you start pushing your price up of what you'd sell at. Right. Trying to trying to get tomorrow's price today. That, uh, exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's this has been a difficult year for developers. Uh, I think they've had some trouble buying land because uh, they're trying to figure out if they can still make money. Not a lot of parking lots downtown Toronto left, right? No, I mean, there even, really even isn't. Five years ago, there were still a bunch that you'd, you'd stumble across, but I can think of two or three off the top of my head, but that's right it. Down. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah Sean, uh, Sean Hildebrand, who was a guest here uh, a couple of weeks ago, he said that effectively as well, that the landowners, they don't need to decide because they don't decide. The inaction will generate them 10% return on their land anyway, so why, exactly. why rush into a decision? When they can just sit in their hands. Uh, maybe this is an appropriate question, but I'll ask it anyway. So do you ever get approached by a guy saying, hey, like, I, I want to buy some land just to hold uh, in the downtown core, um, but I don't want it to go to market because I know I'll get outbid by the developers. So can you, you know, do, are you coming to you particularly saying, are you talking to any guys that, that I can, that I can, you can introduce me to, right? Because I, I know there are guys out there and that just to this concept saying, you know, I, I know there are, there are you know, owners out there that will, will buy, allow me to buy it from them, double the market value. Uh, but then I'm going to sit on it for 15 years, and I don't even care if it generates cash flow because I know in 15 years it'll be worth 15 times that. Is that, is that, is that I, I kind of see this sort of almost predatory, predatory land purchasing. Do you, do you see that across? Are there guys out there doing that? I just don't know. Uh, yes, uh, there are quite a few. You can call them value add funds, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and, and they're just buying it, and yeah. it's almost not for development purposes, not not for the cash flow of the asset, just to literally buy and hold. No, I wouldn't say that actually. If if you're speaking just literally as a land hold. Mm -hmm. There's uh, not many people doing that. Most people want to see a small return on their money. They want to see at least their debt covered. Um, but I mean, the parcel we sold on Dundas Street West, close to Bathurst, that this is a private group that used to do a lot of low density building, um, has now, because of the green belt, been quite frustrated with uh, properties up in York, um, you know, up in the blocks there that have been shut off for servicing um, so have now decided that they're going to come down into the avenues and buy 
mid-rise sites that they believe will be quite uh, valuable five to seven years from now. So, yeah, they're a specific group that uh, that loves that kind of thing. And it's, I'm sure it's frustrating for the developers to know that there's another piece of real estate that they could have they could have made money off of that now is going to sit there and, and not be developed, right? Yeah, I, I would think so. But, I mean, the purchaser, if they tend to pay the most, then you know, the developer will say, well, it's not feasible at that number anyways, and yeah, they'll move on enough. to the next project. I know so. in the discussion note in Vancouver about ways to kind of unlock the housing market there, one of the ideas that was getting knocked around, at least in the newspapers anyway, was putting a, a tax on undeveloped land, which I personally think is an affront to property rights to uh, put in place measures like that after the fact. But, you know, it is it is a factor that uh, people are chasing, you know, return and it impacts uh, land's ultimate use, which is to either house business or residences. Yes, you know? I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it has to be a little more technical than that. I think, you know, because if an owner is sitting there and he's operating some form of a business and a lot of his land is vacant, but, you know, say he operates a... Um, a tire shop, an auto body, right? But it's close to downtown Toronto and it could be developed into a higher and better use. But mind you, if he's still operating there and he's paying taxes, he shouldn't be taxed on top of that, even if he has some excess land. You know, now if there's a parking lot there that's sitting doing nothing, maybe there should be a little more of a push to develop it. But again, you know, there's a lot of parking operators where this is how they make their money. So I would almost argue that uh, they are creating business there. They're creating taxes, and they they should not be forced to develop it. But I'm sure all the developers like to see that kind of <laughs> turn the uh, turn the key to the to the treasure box of uh, land. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah, and force everyone <laughs> yeah. to sell. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of sites left, but there's uh, that would open up quite a few. So there's still enough land to go around. How often do you get into like zoning speculation, right? Where you're 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 trying to speculate what the city is going to prov- going to provide or, or allow when it comes to the density and, and you know building height that kind of thing, um, or is it, is it irrelevant to you at the end of the day? It depends. Uh, I would say that eighty percent of the time, yes, um, you're you call it speculating, but it's more of a knowledgeable understanding of what could be done there. We'll do higher and better use studies. We'll sometimes bring in a planner that we work with uh, to do some of the planning work. Uh, we'll speak to the city. We'll we'll do some analysis on where we think it will, and we'll give ranges. We do advise landowners who are actually looking to zone property, and we'll bring in the different partners and facilitate it. Almost like you know, call it a, a land quarterback, right? You're you're the quarterback. You know all the plays, but you won't facil- You won't actually do the plays. Right. You just right? recommend. So yeah. You recommend. You advise on the process, um, just because we've been there done that many times so but most of the time when you're doing evaluation you have to do an overall planning study um, because you have to that's truly how you value it does it occur where you know landowners who have no intention of actually developing will will go and do the zoning just to increase the value of the land or does that not make sense no absolutely Uh, a lot of landowners looking at doing that but uh, it can get very difficult because I, I know of a property right now I won't name it but they've zoned the property but it was really an incorrect zoning. They made a lot of mistakes along the way, which is now... The, the applicant made the mistakes or the, the city made the mistakes? Okay. The applicant, yeah. Okay. I mean, the city is, they're going to tell you what is on the books, what they want to see, right? But the applicant tried to push density and he added a number of components that are really not effective in selling the property off as condos, you know, call it in the long term. So now that he's looking to sell the zone land, 
there's a lot of issues which are leading to a lower valuation of his land. Mm. Whereas if he would have brought uh, us in or, you know, someone uh, at the start and helped advise on the process, he could have probably got, you know, $10 to $20 a foot higher for his land, you know, given the zone product. But I, I guess people will have an architect involved. They'll they'll start going through the process and they just think, if I zone it, it will be worth more, right? It's kind of a blanket statement. Sure. But there's a lot more moving parts to that. And most developers will tell you the exact same thing. Does every developer think they're the best at going through that process? Uh Yes, a lot of the smart ones do, <laughs> but I, I think that uh, a lot of the smart ones as well recognize and respect the other uh, players out there. You see a lot of JVs yeah, for that reason that you can. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. If you I get, couldn't if you get believe a property kind of lost in the entitlement stage for a prolonged period of time, that's really expensive and really diminishes your return. So it's uh, it especially if you're an active developer builder. Yeah. 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 So it, it, JVs were saying a lot more of actually we're helping a number of landowners look at that process as well as call it a carried interest they're looking to sell their land at x number of dollar but it would be vouched into the interest of a development right so they're just really looking to add value more in the long term they have uh, more risk that they're willing to take they're not looking to take their money and run but they also realize they're not a builder developer so we're running through a few processes for landowners i know um when we're looking at financing development projects that frequently comes up if somebody bought land two years ago, brought it through zoning. They now want to have the value of the land recognized as um, you know post zoning, not not the purchase price. And so, you know, we obviously, you know, we, we'll we'll look at it in a in a you know favorable light, but it can be tough sometimes to take the valuations that the developer put on it themselves. You know, how much yeah. thing is worth now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sure that's. I paid, a, I paid two million dollars. It's been six months now. It's worth fifteen million dollars. So, <laughs> so please lend seventy five percent on that yeah. fifteen million. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that happens all the time, and it, it. I mean, that's like anything. There's always a push and pull on value, and I mean, you guys are lenders. You understand that better than anyone, but uh, ultimately. Owners just need to be educated, you know, whether they're a developer, builder, or a landowner has no clue about real estate because he's never built anything. But, you know, they're going to be educated. They're going to use the right guys. And uh, ultimately, they'll probably get to where they're going. While we're on, while we're on the topic, I think it, we, we will ask about the financing side of things. And does, how, what is that, um, how does that play into your analysis when trying to figure out values of land and, you know, what equity is required? And, you know, what, 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 how, do you, how do you spec out the, the leverage on, on the debt that you think that will be needed to, in order to develop or, and or just hold the land? Well, most of the time we will we'll treat the land as being bought free and clear kind of and developer builder whoever it is will figure out their own financing but in most cases we'll do a high level understanding of what debt can be put to on it and we, you know we'll come to a guy like adam and uh help uh, analyze the process or the property rather to see what it would look like if say a typical developer was going to buy this at x price mm-hmm. what does the debt look like because it, it helps understand you know where you're going to be because there's a lot of options in financing. Obviously, you guys know this better than anyone, but you get guys under uh, looking for VTBs, vendor take-back mortgages, where the owner of the property will hold the mortgage for mm-hmm. the purchaser ultimately, um, either in a first, second position. And you know, where's the debt going to play into that? So it can quickly become complex or complicated. 
um, that's not our forte in which yeah, why sure. we come well, to you then guys. Just to speak to that there, I mean, there's an interesting right now, just, just the time of year perhaps, but it's, it's, um, it's extremely illiquid for land financing right now. There's just, there's nobody with, with, with that cash we're seeing, um, with, or with the ability to lend on land, we're seeing a lot of clients coming to us saying like, I just can't find, I can't find a lending partner yep. right now yep. to even give me, you know, 50% That's of right. the value when, you know, at certain periods, you know, certain periods of the year you can find, it's easy to do it. And you can find guys yep. that are willing to do 60 or 70% even on that land value, knowing that the development's there depending on, on who owns it. Right. But it, it's a real interesting piece of piece of it's a real interesting asset for financing, right? Because there's no cash flow, right? So you really yeah. have to trust in the developer, trust mm-hmm. in the in the exper- experience of the guy that's doing it, and and understand the market, right? I mean, you know, a piece of land downtown core versus a piece of land in you know Oshawa have totally different yeah. attributes, even if it's the exact same exact same uh, yeah, you got uh, operator. It. So I want to jump to environmental. Uh, being <laughs> a lender, side. yeah, being a lender, it's it is. I mean, it's something that we're extremely focused on. It's it's one of those very few things, often if not the only thing, that can absolutely kill a deal, right? I mean, you can get to the the, the closing table and you get that environmental report, and if there's contamination, I mean, it's it's a non-starter for basically every lender across the board, you know, unless you get up the the risk stack to some of the guys that are willing to take a lot more risk. What how, how does Enviro play into you, and what's your approach to it? Because I think right now, and at least you know, some of the, the previous guests have been mentioning that um, that's one of the new strategies, right? There's no more sort of easy, low hanging fruit in the land uh, acquisition side, and so it's starting to be experts in environmental contamination and remediation and all that kind of stuff. So how do you, how do you how do you approach that? In an ideal world, we would approach it with the landowner at the first. Um, outset of uh, being mandated with them, but most landers landowners don't really want to go through an environmental um, study. It's like if I don't know, it can't be there, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And we always like to educate them more, um, help them understand that you know if you will go through a phase one and phase two ESA on your own, you know, depending on if you need a record of site condition condition or not, it's still good to have because you will push back on those false starts where there's information that we don't know right we as brokers and advocates for landowners we don't know what's in the ground right we can't tell you and we can't even uh, guarantee anything there so telling the landowner to go through the environmental studies at the start is very important because they know exactly what they're dealing with because at the end of the day these developers builders are very sophisticated they're going to figure this out no matter what well it'll be a condition of the purchase more exactly likely, right exactly but buyers don't want to get part way down the road and then find out if you show up um you know if you're, if you're taking a, a property to market and you have that that clean phase two already you'll attract more potential purchasers of the property because they'll engage their efforts into some the people property. like dirty land yeah because it pushes <laughs> out it qualifies or disqualifies a lot of buyers it amazes me how many times we get approached by whether it's land owners or or just apartment owners or any kind of asset uh, that say i what's what's the i don't why do i need an esa i don't want to get an i don't want to spend the <laughs> i don't want to spend the five thousand dollars and it's like the, well, the use well, hasn't changed since i bought sorry it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is the government speaking well, not what, us what yeah. amazes me is okay let's say that asset's worth ten million dollars Listen, if there's if there's you know some serious contaminant, that thing goes from ten million dollars to two million dollars in value very very quickly. So like I understand why you don't want to know it's worth eight million dollars less, but at the same time, it's it's just it's it's so imperative to be able to make the right decision right at the end of the day. Like it, it baffles me for those real estate owners out there. Get an environmental done. It's 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 really yeah, important. It is smart. Know what you have. Yeah, and you can deal with it. No one wants a false start. 
I mean, there's lots of stories, I'm sure you guys have heard them, of properties getting tied up conditionally time after time after time after time. Oh, yeah. And it's burning out All the owner. All the time, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's yeah. funny, there's just a reluctance, for, for whatever reason, to go and do it yeah, and get the right guy. Or, you know, God forbid, it uh, shows up once the deal has gone firm and then everybody starts backtracking and calling their lawyers and it's... Uh, yeah, that's something that... Uh, that's another question, to uh, another deal uh, story, rather. But I, I, it's the funny, though, I, the analogy I always give is, say you're selling your home and you could do a building inspection report of your home and you could uh, put a bunch of new art in, make it look nicer, and now you've kind of got all the the stories of your building so that there's going to be no surprises to the purchaser, you're going to be able to sell your property a lot easier, your home, right? So it's the same thing for land, whether it be a redevelopment property, whether it be a repositioning asset, uh, give more information to the buyer because today's world, people are more sophisticated. They're not going to take risk, especially in this uh, tight market. And it actually may lend, you know, I don't always want to say this, but it might be able to get the purchaser to go in on the deal unconditional. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? It doesn't but, happen a lot, but it can. I like the car analogy. Like you'd never buy a car without looking under the hood. And that's kind of exactly what an ESA is, right? It's just checking out checking out the details of the, of the, of the asset. And well, my that, mom would buy it without okay. looking. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry, mom. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> it looks pretty. Yeah, it looks great. I love that color. Who cares? That it's 190 kilometers, 190,000 kilometers on it. I ran into an issue, actually. Um, I probably should mention this at the top of the show, but uh, Jeremiah and I actually used to work together at Collier's. That's I started, right. Uh, yep. About a year after he did. So I was working with a client at the time. They wanted to have an industrial presence in downtown Toronto, which is a tough, uh, tough order to fill. <laughs> So we ended up in the Portlands, which is just east of downtown. Dom Tar used to operate there, heavily contaminated. And Dirtiest so they were, place in the city. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they were willing to build out there. And so we found a suitable, uh, I think it was only maybe a little bit over over an acre. I can't remember the price, but it seemed very reasonable, of course, because there was going to be a large remediation cost. And the the uh, estimates was that the remediation cost was going to be somewhere between two and nine million dollars. <laughs> yeah, and I, that's really, of course, I killed the deal right there because yeah. that's a wide range. You know, yeah. here's uh, your delta. Yeah, and the, <laughs> the, the owner's not willing to do anything. It's you know they've had a report done, and this is the estimate. And and uh, you know if you want to jump in with uh, you know your your lotto ticket and see what happens to this property, then go ahead. But uh, yeah, that obviously is not the property for us. That uh, we had moved on. No, yeah, the, yeah there's uh, all those lands out there are quite dirty. That's why everyone says, wait, it's next to downtown Toronto. Why is that mean developed? Well. You look at the billions of dollars of remediation need to. Yeah. At some point, obviously, it has to be city intervention to try and. Uh, I would hope so. Risk. I'm yeah. sure they're thinking about it, right? There's a lot of they property are. taxes. You know, if you PV the property taxes over the next, you know, 50 or 100 year horizon, it's worth a billion dollars of remediation, I'm sure, right? Yeah. But, you know, someone eventually will figure that out. <laughs> Um, we hope. Yeah. What can we talk about trends? Like, where do you see where do you see the sort of the land um, the land plays going in the future? I mean, this dense in, in density intensification just seems to be you know going strong. And do you see that continuing, or what do you see happening? Yeah, I don't. I don't see the market slowing down at any point in time. I always have debates with my cousin in Chicago, who I mean, he does debt all over the U.S., but he always thinks, okay, we're in a bubble here, and as do most people who are not in the market um sean hildebrandt would know this better than anyone dealing with the stats side of things but on the demand side there's just incredible demand and there's not a lot of supply i mean this year there hasn't been too many high-rise condo launches i believe and so you're seeing uh, 
I think it ate Cumberland launched uh, Minto and they, you know, they sold out in a weekend because it was one of the only launches in the last quarter um, for high rise. So um, going back to your question, um, the market's going to continue to move, I believe, unless there is a large credit uh, mishap in the world. And because the demand is still there, which is going to drive uh, land um, to be bought up and to be needed. As far as trends go, uh, I would say right now there's a bit of a risk on the land side because of um, some pressure on the OMB to uh, to move from the councillors in the city. They'd like to kind of take the OMB out of the Toronto region and allow the city to operate purely. I don't think it'll ever happen, but there's probably going to be changes to the OMB and what that might do to a landowner, whereas currently they could zone it um, for X number of stories and the density could be quite great uh, the city might actually see uh, that process being or that property being a lot lower they might actually lose out on value in the long term so you know we're, we're seeing some squeezing there that might happen in the future but ultimately i think the city has to listen to what the demand is and they need to provide more density in a city that is continuing to grow with people and so the only way you can do that is go up you know, because once you've built a tower, it's done, right? So you can't go back 25, 50 years from now when prices are way too expensive to be in the core and say, oh, we need to build more density here. So you would hope that. Uh, Do you worry that there's almost like a tiering happening in, in the city, in the GTA of, of, of different markets where, where you have these, you know, 30, 40 sort of developer machines that, that need to have this staff that need to keep the, the, the machine running that are moving outside of the core because there's just not a lot of development opportunities left and they're moving to um, sort of secondary areas like like Etobicoke. I mean, I was driving around the city uh, this weekend and uh, there's some developments going on in the sort of the sort of Dufferin and Lawrence area, right? It's not on any major transportation hub. It's not near any highway. And I just worry that there is this push to start just keep developing where maybe there is no no real demand or the, the economics don't make terrible sense, but because they've already got the staff and the machine and the equity that they just need to keep moving. And I know I, I appreciate the downtown core is a different story because it's just such a, a, a demand and there's so many people moving in and the, the demographics make sense and the job supply, et cetera, et cetera. But do you think it makes sense for all this development that's occurring in the in the secondary market, sort of the, the horseshoe around, around the, the core? Yes, I think so. Um, I, I think that you're, you're spot on. There are a lot of developers who have large machines that need to keep running. Um, and I just worry that that's, that's fogging their judgment, you know. Because easier just, yeah, maybe I'll make 8%, 7% on yeah. this one. And, you know, maybe my pre-sales will be a little bit slower, but it's better than, you know, firing 50 people. I, I think that everyone in the GTA market is highly conservative compared to other markets. We're so used to having sites being sold out, you know, one to three months, you know, is kind of slow, right? Mm-hmm. Where, whereas you look in different areas of North America and to have a sales process for a year is fine, right? I mean, obviously the, the pricing, the debt will have to reflect that. But when you look at a developer with a big company and a lot of employees, if um, they look at other areas and they just have uh, a sales velocity that's slower, you know, for them, that's okay, right? Because they have a lot of cash reserves. They've done well in the meantime. So looking at different areas where there's obviously going to be demand in the future, I think is not a bad idea. You know, I spoke at earlier on that we had this deal just go firm in Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton's a great area where it's a city that 
is not necessarily a bedroom um, city uh, where people are always going to Toronto. There's actually quite a bit of commerce going on there. At the same time, it's a nice place to live in certain areas, right? So why wouldn't you build there if there's demand? But uh, at the end of the day, it's... <laughs> This business is still very much emotional, and if the principles of the company feel and believe in an area, that they'll end up buying there, right? It's there's going to be no um, analytics or stats to tell them otherwise, even if there is risk that looks like it on paper. Hmm. I want to ask you, Jeremiah, about you know the, the profile of the typical typical buyer of land these days. We talked a bit about who's selling land, but when you when you take as you mentioned your you mentioned your property um, at the corner of church and wellesley so what kind of groups would you see showing up for you know that's a, that's a crown jewel kind of development site it's right downtown corner corner piece uh who would you see showing up for that kind of a purchase well there's quite a few different groups uh i would say the bulk of them are residential condo developers the, but the, they're really big names or do you see other people trying to you know couple together jvs of smaller players or would we know, would we know all the names attached to those uh, offers you would probably know about 80% of them. Yeah, most of the regular players have to continue building and they're looking for the right spots. There were a few West Coast guys, um, a few mid uh, Midwest guys, and then we actually had some American groups as well, uh, purpose-built rental guys coming to the table. But uh, most of the time, you're going to know who the guys are coming to the table, right? Because you know they know the area well. They develop here long-term. They're looking to control property in their market their sub market they've been in already i would say that on the past bids for a couple other properties we're seeing a lot more private guys come in it it seems like there's a a glut of capital in the market and everyone wants to control property downtown toronto so you know you're seeing uh private guys step up a lot more than the regular developers um, just because they want to control projects and uh, they may not be builders themselves but they're looking to take a property if it's not zoned through the entitlement rezoning process and potentially looking to JV to build. It's a hot topic in the news, but what about foreign foreign investments? Do you see guys come in that you know um, may have other motivations, you know, to just get their capital deployed, so they're they're no longer looking at you know typical economics. Yes, um, we are seeing that. We've worked with a few um, foreign groups, um, but they're not all Asian, as uh, what everyone thinks. There are quite a few Asian groups in the market, but um, as, uh, as well, there's some Middle East, American groups uh, especially, and, um, and then some European companies as well. But there's a lot of eyes on Toronto right now. Um, when you think about the state of the world, um, the Brexit and the U.S. with Trump now, the president-elect, um, the European, uh, the EU kind of looking a little shaky, Toronto still seems um, like the heart of Canada and Canada being a very stable market where the the big five banks have uh, essentially um, uh, deposits coming in every year, a guaranteed billion-dollar business. A lot of people are thinking, well, you know, it's kind of fringe to um, the states, but it's a stable North American market where we can put capital. So a lot of buyers really want to at least understand the market. Mm-hmm. They may not actually end up buying, which has been a lot of cases, but uh, they're looking to to at least understand it and if they can control product and then would bring in a local developer to actually build it but uh just even had a call with an australian developer who's looking here too like there's 
there's a lot of guys looking at it. Yeah, it's, well, it's surprising. Sydney a, is a really hot market. I don't know. Very much so. That. That's, stable that's, and, they're right. stable and, and very expensive there, right? It's, very, it's, yeah. It's even more expensive yeah. than Toronto. Uh, it is. And people always find that surprising. But, yeah, we're, no, we're not the most expensive place in the world to live yet. No, we're not even, <laughs> not even, not even close. close. I, know, yeah. I know. Don't worry. we got plenty of more growth to go, guys. That's the funny part, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. as long as we have some wage appreciation, I think everyone will be fine please, in the Please and thank term. you, yeah. Uh, Jeremiah, what do you have coming up in the in the pipeline uh, in terms of you know new deals coming to market? What can we expect uh, expect out of you in the next kind of six months? Well, some stuff in the uh, midtown area, uh, some stuff out in the peripheral markets. Uh, I can't say specifics right now, but um, um, we had a another property out over on Jarvis. Um, we had out to market, and then as well some stuff uh, North Young Corridor. Is that, is that all residential or is that... Uh, yeah, residential yeah. and some retail, um, some repositioning assets on the west side as well. Right now, there's kind of a lot of uh, up-in-the-air projects. Just everyone's kind of waiting to see what happens next year, it seems. So we're in the planning stages with a number of uh, owner groups um, right now, which we'll probably see in Q1 come out. Okay. So people who are looking to get involved in purchases, I assume they're connecting... Now would be a good time, given that uh, you know there's kind of uh, you're saying there's a little pent up, uh, pent up uh, demand in the market, so people would be moving forward in projects in the new year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. okay. if you're a landowner, there's never been a better time. I mean, you've probably heard that many times, but uh, there's a lot of pent up demand, and right now, if you can take it through an organized process, um, you know our marketing schemes will lend definitely the highest value. That's for sure. Um, but given developers looking to buy on the buy side. Um, there's still a lot of properties if they can be creative, a lot of properties they can pick up. I don't think we uh, I don't think we prepped you for this, but um, we do a segment where we do best and worst days, presumably in real estate. If you want to keep to the topic, uh, and it can't be the day you lost your your biggest deal and the and then the best day being the day you landed your biggest deal because <laughs> that's too easy. Too easy. All right. <laughs> best and worst. Honestly. Uh, Maybe this is a little too typical, but maybe the first deal I did, uh, the first large deal, I'll call it, I guess. Yeah. How, how large was large? Well, it was six point six five million was back when I'm, you know, however old was to me big, and uh, I was over by Spadina and Queen. I would say it's the best and worst because when you win the mandate, we won the pitch. At the time, you think it's great; it's the best day you've ever. You won your first big deal, right? You're gonna help that landowner, but. Um, the worst probably because once we're going through the deal, the deal was so complex on both sides that uh, it ended up dying probably three times and coming back to life. And here I am stressing on every That's single side. That's where you got side. the gray hair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Already spent half the commission check in oh, advance. Yeah. <laughs> no, man. Uh, yeah. Bought some new shoes, you know. No, no but in all honesty, uh, the deal dying and coming back to life three or four times is quite stressful because I'm understanding all the different things. And at the time, the senior partner I was working with just kept telling me, you know, there's there's a lot of things that can happen. Don't worry. But uh, just a massive roller coaster of emotion trying to understand what is actually happening. But, you know, once you go through your first deal like that, then you kind of understand that all deals are never really set in stone until they close and you really learn what the market is like. So there's a guy in our office here at First National that um, uses the term "good deals always close," and I, and I don't know if that's that's 100 percent true, but the the, the the theory or the logic is that you got to just 
calm your mind and just next yeah just just keep <laughs> just keep going yeah you can't you can't get caught up yeah. in the ebbs and flows and it takes years and years and years of being pulled through the runner to, to really oh, yeah. learn that right like i can i can remember distinctly the first time i lost a, a medium-sized deal it feels like he's got kicked in the stomach repeatedly and you can't focus for three days straight it's uh, you know it's uh, yeah. yeah it's a real learning experience but it's it's a wake-up because you start to understand how business works and you understand that the market will keep going yeah, whether it's yeah. up down sideways whatever you're going to be okay in the long term as long as you add value for keep your customer hard. Just client keep working hard yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. that's part of the, the value you add is um you know, every deal has this you know unique quirks and you don't really know where the landmine is going to be it's a matter of are you going to get over it or not you know are you going to, are you going to navigate it successfully that's so exactly gonna, right yeah so guys like jeremiah can get you through that rather than watching a deal blow up and a bunch of sad faces around uh, <laughs> I, you know what i actually like the more tricky deals because you, then you have to put in a creative solution to get through the deal it's more fun that way well and you're, you're creating more value for your client as well oh, right? absolutely Which at the end of the day that's that's really what the, the they're the ones is, that right? remember yeah, you yeah, like oh i had yeah, a serious well, problem yeah, and jeremiah sure helped me around it so yeah but uh yeah there's I don't know. There's there's a lot of things that come up now. The market has been squeezed in a lot of ways, so you're starting to have to be more and more creative every single time. Yeah, I've actually um, shoot. I can't remember who told me this, but uh, the effectively the market as a whole has gotten access to you know more sophisticated uh, ways of looking at land. So the odds of you kind of sneaking into a deal and stealing it away now just never happens in the market. Exactly. Twenty years ago, yeah. you could really steal a deal from you know. It's so. very true. I, I always say there's really only three ways you get a deal right now is either pay the most, obviously. Yeah. You get lucky, which happens maybe 5% of the time, or uh, or you work hard, really. Yeah. <laughs> so the working hard is kind of uh, looking at enough deals and understanding something that no one else does. Seeing right? something that no one else does. Exactly, yeah. right? Like look at, uh, for example, um, the Honest Ed site at Bloor and Bathurst, uh, West Bank. I mean, they did outbid everyone there. I mean, we, we at Collier sold it, but they um, they actually saw something that no one else did. You know, they saw an entire purpose-built rental community, more of a, um, a master plan community where they could bring in a lot of retail and create a true neighborhood for people. Now, it hasn't been approved hasn't yet, been easy, yeah. but um, I, I think in the long term, they will look successful. And so... You know, there's an example of someone seeing something that no one else did and maybe paying the most at the same time. But <laughs> good combination. One, one, of, yeah. one of my favorite corners of the city is that street immediately west of Honest Ed's, right? There's it's just like there's like boutique bookshops and you know, all those old tiny, houses. Yeah, that look like great Korean food. Yeah, yeah there's like yep. some really neat little retail I live over spots. there. Yeah, I love a, it. It's a, a cool little street that you just, you know, you have to be a Torontonian to really know it's even there, right? It's so, very true. Um, hopefully West Bank sort of keeps the, the, the vibe of that type of that type oh, of place. Oh, I think they'll do place. great. Yeah. There's actually a theater over there that was redone into a climbing oh, yeah. gym. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing what's happening. I, I truly think that once the city starts to put attention on an area, it will follow with private development i mean you look at bloor they redid the streetscape there they put in the bike lanes um redid the sidewalks and all of a sudden it doesn't look so shady anymore for yeah. lack of a better word it looks great and then all of a sudden people start looking on the area so i think it's a great area long term love that spot great um news adam's got a great news story for us I, I do I, i'm not going to tell you who it's from immediately because it's kind of part of the story here but i'll tell you the headline Blame the banks 
for all those boring chain stores ruining your city. Oh, yes. So I thought it was it's pretty dramatic. 80s movies taught us a long time ago that developers and bankers are the worst, most evil people in the world. But you figure a publication like Bloomberg would be on our side. I was shocked to see this kind of a headline coming out of uh, out of Bloomberg. And you know the basic premise is that uh, lenders will give more favorable terms to developments that have big name tenants, and it's, it's definitely it's definitely true. So of course, then developers are driven to to the, make these kinds of decisions where they're chasing. 17 Starbucks in a row and <laughs> no no character to the city. Yeah, yeah. Starbucks, McDonald's, shoppers. Starbucks, McDonald's, shoppers. Back yeah. to back to back. Yeah. And Squeeze and a little Loblaws in yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a couple of quotes out of it. It's, it's, a US, it's a U.S. article, but they're basically estimating the retail with big name tenants gets 25% more value. I don't know what they're predicating that on. I I, I do believe that number. Um, is, is, here's another quote as, as far as landlords are concerned restaurant chains and large retailers are safer bets than mom and pop stores the same thinking goes for banks lending to property buyers who will generally extend better terms when a chain business such as a Gap or a Walgreens is on the lease and it goes on there you know further to to blame lenders repeatedly but you know, really, you know we work for a lender right I know it. that's why I, <laughs> I, I'm taking this personally wait a second yeah, <laughs> but I, mean, I think that interest rates are only you know, a, a part of the problem you know mom and pops have a higher failure rate which you know impacts stability of cash flow so it pushes those developments further down the, you know, the risk spectrum so we, we adjust our interest rates which then impacts the uh, yield on equity and that's where the developer makes a decision to chase the the, uh, the Walgreens down in the states or the shoppers drug marts up here uh, it's not. Uh, it's not the lenders. This is no. <laughs> I actually would argue that it's an effective. It's a relationship thing. You know, you look at uh, the Walgreens and uh, the shoppers and whatnot. They have huge real estate teams. That I uh, just sounded like Trump. Huge, <laughs> huge real estate teams that uh, they're in constant contact with developers all over the place. So, if a developer has a relationship with five to ten different retailers and they know exactly what they're going to pay, they know how they're going to operate it's much easier to go to them before the development's even finished when they're guaranteeing their loans. Yeah, versus the independent coffee shop or whoever Absolutely. it may be. Yeah, you're not going to find that guy, get him signed up a year and a half before the development's no, done. No, that's, right? that's the thing, right? And I think now you're seeing that, especially in Toronto in the core, a lot of developers are allowing time to find those mixed-use type tenants. I know one properties on the east side, they're doing exactly that with their, their large... Uh, I think it's almost an entire block, Sherborne in um, Ontario, Richmond to Queen there. Um, same thing with Best, West Bank. They're looking for more individual um, owners. But, but you have to take the risk that you build it first. Let Because those, exactly. those types of users want to walk in, see the space, make sure it will fit the needs of what their specific business is, right? So you, you can't do it early. You can't do it early. But I, it's honestly a relationship thing. I think most things in this world are really at the end of the day it's like yeah. you know, who do you have relationships with you feel comfortable with you know how they operate it's trust it's it's a trust thing yeah well thanks very much jeremiah this has been interesting as always uh love to have you on again you know maybe talk about new trends in, in the land in, after in land. land prices collapse we'll have them back on oh the yeah <laughs> quarterly update on yeah, land well, we've prices. been proven completely wrong and there was a bubble and was, oh yeah <laughs> I, I, i'm all out of a job now adam and i are doing this for a career <laughs> radio talk show yeah uh about the terrible commercial real estate environment just a reminder everyone listening uh you can always find us at uh, cre podcast um, for twitter um online cre podcast.ca 
Um, of course, it's iTunes and uh, Google Play. You can download the podcast. And am I forgetting anything? I think that's it. I mean, I'll do the show notes for this episode. I'll have a link to that insulting uh, Bloomberg article if you want to read the <laughs> whole thing. It'll, it'll be up there as well as uh, Jeremiah's contact information if you want to, if you want to get a hold of him about uh, any of his upcoming projects. Great. Thanks for coming. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.